How should Christians think about color in 2020? Should we be preoccupied with ethnicity or enmity? And what dangers should Christians be aware of when dealing with liberation theology in spite of its cultural popularity? Hold on to your seat. You don't want to miss this. Falkirk Center fellows and hosts of the Just Thinking podcast, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, join the Falkirk Center podcast starting now. Hi, welcome to another exciting edition of the Falkirk Center podcast at Liberty University, where Christ is King, church is essential, and freedom is everything. We're actually on the road, and I'm joined today by Virgil Walker and Daryl Harrison. Guys, welcome to the Falkirk Center podcast. Man, fellows with the Falkirk Center, by the way. That's and this right. is the first time since COVID lockdowns right. that we have been together. Um, Daryl, I was in your neck of the woods uh, just a few weeks ago visiting Pastor Johnny Mack at uh, Grace Community Church, and your course is with Grace to You. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virgil, uh, you were at our Get Louder Faith Summit yeah, uh, a just time. a little over a month ago. Man, what an awesome time we had together. Um, tell, tell our listeners, what are we doing here today? Yeah, excited to be here, uh, Ryan. Uh, really thinking through just social justice and the issues around social justice. Uh, the guys at Sovereign Nations put together this conference. Uh, they wanted to address those issues. They wanted to have a, have a forum where we could come together, those who are speaking about those subjects, and really hit it hard, really unpack what's, what, what, is, what does the Bible say? What does scripture have to say about these issues? And so we really unpacked that here with, with some, of the, some of the folks who are speaking kind of on the forefront of those issues. So yeah, I got people like Josh Bice and Tom Askell and others. You, you, you got a chance to speak a little bit, got a chance to do your thing. So yeah, we had a good time. I did time. a flyby. Did a flyby. <laughs> and, uh, just really having an opportunity to talk about and discuss these important issues. So what is your talk about yeah. later today? I'm gonna to be doing a, kind of a historic review mm-hmm. of black liberation theology mm-hmm. and, and walking through its impact, not only on church culture, but on the culture at large. Right. And so what people I think have a tendency to do is they kind of couch the BLM movement all the way back to Marx. Right. And the reality is this process has been a long one. Uh, and it's been very intricate. Um, and and it, it's, it's included a number of names along the way. So we don't go from Marx to today. There's some there's some some ways that, that we need to navigate, think about those. Let's things. let's 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 unpack that just for a second. Because sure. I am curious. Okay, so James Cone writing in the 1960s um, in, in Black Liberation, and he's written several works. A couple of those would be The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Um, black theology the, and black power. Black po- theology, black power, and that was one where he takes like I think it's juxtaposition of MLK with yes. with, with uh, uh, Malcolm X, and then um, uh, then he obviously writes his kind of treatment similar to Gustavo Gutierrez's liberation theology, uh, the Dominican priest. Um, he writes his own towards a, towards a black liberation. Um, what what is it that people who are kind of like walking into this obviously it didn't happen just in the 1960s but what what is really entering into this discussion when you're thinking of liberation theology yeah. I, I think again you, you mentioned gustavo gutierrez and his impact kind of in in south america south and central america i, I think what what 
what Cone did was he grabbed not only Gutierrez's information, mm -hmm. but he also looked at kind of the power, the black power movement that was around him from the Black Panthers, mm -hmm. uh, all of what was happening in the vacuum that you have with Malcolm X leaving the scene, with Martin Luther King leaving the scene. He begins to infuse his own ideas into this process that, that, that becomes black liberation theology. Wow, and uh, Union Theological Seminary. Union Theological there, Seminary, yep. Seminary. Yep. What's interesting is I think that school was endowed by J.D. Rockefeller, I want to say. There's several of those schools up there that, that uh, but what's interesting is the, I think Reinhold Niebuhr and some of the others were involved there. And, and um, I do believe that Dietrich Bonhoeffer also served on faculty as well. Really? I could that be I wrong about that. Yeah, I didn't know so that. I have to double check, but that was, a, that's in upstate New York mm -hmm. and has a long, long uh, theological tradition and progressivism, liberalism. Progressivism, yeah, liberalism. liberalism. Yeah. I think they're the same school, by the way, that was uh, doing this whole thing about uh, Mother Nature mm -hmm. and the tree is the goddess yes. or whatever. And, uh, yeah, confessing to the tree and, yes. and the plants. Yeah. It's yeah. just absolutely insane. But let me ask you this. Did Karl Barth and some of the other German uh, theologians, did they have an influence on liberation? Yeah, all, all along the way. Those influences are there. The trails are there. Again, it depends upon which which modern day person you talk about, which trails they picked up. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All of those, all those lines kind of intersect. Absolutely. And what's interesting about that too, in the early part of the 20th century with, with uh, German uh, liberalism, you had the Enlightenment, of course, and then you had um, Frederick Schleiermacher, who was, and I'm pulling... God, by the way, I'm not Wikipedia here, but I'm just kind of pulling not from the deep space of the brain. Not too bad. But he was the father of modern liberal theology. And his whole, his whole thing was basically taking scripture and saying it's no longer the word of God. And then as you fast forward through higher criticism, you have the destruction of, of the, the canon, the biblical canon, the biblical record. And then um, Jesus becomes mythologized. There's the quest for the historic Jesus. There's Schweitzer and Albert Rischel, Adolf von Harnack and so many of these others, and this Christology then kind of permeates um, German theology. And so no longer do you have the Jesus of the Bible, right. but Jesus as a myth or geist of history, right. whatever. Well, you, you see that kind, of, that, that kind of deconstruction happening currently. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the model that they've pulled from to deconstruct language. I mean, we were talking about it earlier, uh, the, the manner in which language is being deconstructed, the manner in which uh, th the way we identify one another is being deconstructed for the purpose of just tearing down structures and systems, all of it's uh, akin to one another, and they're pulling from each other's playbooks. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that talk. So that's coming later. Yeah. This is, this is awesome. Okay, so Daryl, yeah. um, I just heard your talk. Absolutely amazing. Um, tell us, first of all, what you said, and then give us a summary. Yeah, so the title of my talk was Enmity, Not Ethnicity. Enmity, Not Ethnicity. And I took that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, mm -hmm. where Paul basically gives the Ephesian church the fundamental um, raison d'etre as to why there is this enmity that exists between, uh, organically between us and God, number one, and then horizontally between man to man. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that talk, I tried to drive home the point that the root cause of the enmity that exists between human beings, regardless of where you are, regardless of your ethnicity, is the enmity, the inherent enmity that uh, exists between us and God that's rooted in our hearts. And that that enmity plays itself out in our human relationships as well. So one of the driving points that I hope I left the audience with was that your melanin is static. It has absolutely no potential to feel, think, love, hate, uh, conjure up, uh, opinions or biases, uh, but all that comes from the heart. Yeah. And I tried to root that in Mark chapter seven, 
17:23. So fundamentally, the point of that talk was to basically drive home the fact that the issue that we're facing in the culture today is an issue of enmity, not ethnicity. Tell us about Jupiter Hammond. Yeah, so Jupiter Hammond is a historical figure. He was born in the early 1700s, around the year 1711. He lived to be about 98 years old, 99 years old. He died about 1806, 1807. And Jupiter Hammond are brought up in this topic as a central figure, as one who exemplified God's sovereignty even over his enslavement. Mm -hmm. uh, before Jupiter Hammond died, he gave an address uh, titled An Address to the Negroes of New York, where he basically exposited the biblical doctrine of the sovereignty of God, even over his situation as a slave. Jupiter Hammond literally took every breath of his life as a human being as someone else's property. He did not have a free second in his life. He, he never lived as a free man at all. And yet he had a biblical theology of God's sovereignty, even that he looked at his, his enslavement as eschatological, as God being sovereign over placing him in that situation. And before he died, he addressed his fellow, uh, what was termed back then, his fellow Negro brethren to have a biblical understanding, a biblical uh, uh, worldview of their enslavement and not to overlook the fact that they themselves were enemies of God and that he evangelized them to come to faith in Christ, recognize that even you are enslaved to sin and that makes you an enemy of God and that is something that you have to deal with in the uppermost, in the utmost. Your, your slavery to your sin yeah. is worse than your physical bondage. I'm going to go to a story. I love this because I want to go to a story, <clears throat> biblical record here for a second. Because you, you lose a lot of references uh, where Christ is teaching about what goes into man versus com comes out of the heart of man, out of Luke. You also uh, talked about Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 5. And this is a right before Noah, that, 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 that man's days are evil, that they're constantly, their heart is geared towards doing evil, and God regretted making mankind, that, that term is used. One of the things that I think of, and this is actually in the Exodus account, so when you think about liberation theologies, um, obviously um, you take kind of Karl Marx meets uh, Moses of the Old Testament, you put those together, and then that's how you kind of do that whole storyline. Um, but what's interesting is the 10 plagues. Okay, I think you, you might know where I'm going with this, but the first nine plagues is the judgment of the gods of Egypt. Egypt right. And so they're sending, you know, uh, Yahweh is, is, is literally just wreaking havoc on, on uh, Pharaoh and his people. And it's like, hey, you worship frogs? Here's some frogs, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, your God is represented by the Nile? I'm gonna kill your God in the Nile mm -hmm. and I'm gonna turn that Nile into blood, right? Osiris and all that. And so everything is a representation of his judgment of the gods of Egypt in Genesis chapter 12. That's literally what it says, that he, that he judged over them. In, in the 10th plague, however, the angel of death visits, but he doesn't just go to Egypt, he also goes to Goshen. Right. And so what you see in that moment is the judgment of God is coming, but it's also coming to the household of God, his people, the one that he made covenant with. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hey, God, you know, and so you start out in Exodus chapter one, the cries of God's people, God hears them. And so obviously he's going to send a deliverer. But the judgment of God in the Passover feast is in recognition that a judgment is coming and that judgment is coming against all of us. And if the blood of that lamb is not on that doorpost, he's coming for you. So what, how do you, how, when, when we talk about enmity and you see that thing, even in the Exodus account where he's taking people, literally they're in slavery 
Today we're being taught in liberation theology and everything else is that God has preferential right. over certain people, over, over certain color, certain ethnicity, uh, certain uh, you know oppressor versus oppressed. These people were oppressed of God, and yet the judgment of God still came. Absolutely. So I mean, how how do you how do you see that? Or how, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know that's a loaded question, but I just think it speaks to the righteousness of God, mm-hmm. that God His nature does not change based on circumstances, situations. Um, you know, any sort of uh, aesthetic appearance, you know, uh, rich, poor, uh, your, your ethnicity does not matter uh, and it should not matter. Obviously, God created us. Uh, so, but I think it speaks to the, the uh, unchanging nature of God. I and mean, you look, especially in the Old Testament, God is very, very emphatic that he shows no partiality. I mean, none, zero. Uh, and I think what we miss uh, in this current social justice milieu the social gospel itself, liberation theology, has an inherent bias to the poor, to the, to the less fortunate. But God's word says it's, it's a sin even to show partiality to the poor. Yes. Um, so, but I think when you look at how God judged even his own uh, covenant people, um, that circumstances and situations do not give you a loophole uh, from God's righteousness, from God's justice, from God's wrath. God is holy. He re- He retains His holiness. He will not negotiate His holiness based on your circumstances, your situations. He's not. He's going to be immovable in that regard. That God's still going to be who He is, despite who we are. The beauty of the gospel is the access to all. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I mean, that was the beauty of kind of what, what the message that was delivered um, just moments ago by Daryl. It's the beauty of the gospel is that that the son is is given as a ransom for all, right? And that that we all equally uh, have opportunity, right? To repent of sin and place our faith in him. So that's the beauty of it. That's what's so amazing. And when you think about the holiness of God and you think about the blood, the shed blood of his son, that it covers over all sins, past, present, the total sufficiency of that sacrifice, right? That it doesn't need to be recapitulated. And then you see in that, obviously, you see the holiness of God, you see the justice of God and the immutable qualities of that justice, that it must be satisfied. The demands of that, of that law and that holiness, that righteousness of God must be satisfied. How much greater than that sacrifice? Now, the problem today and by today's standards, I can, I can name any number of pietistic, moralistic people. Right. You can go to Tibet and you can see people who yes. suffer yes. and subject themselves right. to a kind of suffering, right. Right. but it's a man-made religion. Right. Right. So I can find people that are holier than us. Yes. I mean, in terms of like worldly standards, right. I'm like, wow, that's a kind of aestheticism. I don't walk barefoot Yeah, I mean, you, you take Muslims with Ramadan, you know, making yeah. the pilgrimage over to Mecca, the same thing, you know. That's, that's right. Yeah. I mean, just all throughout the world, there are people that are practicing these. Jesus did a work we could not do. Absolutely. And, and, and that's there's a, the whole thing about the Sabbath um, and the command to keep that Sabbath. There's a rest that we cannot enter into without the work of Christ. And so I, I see that over and over again. Coming up, because this is something that I'm really, really interested in. You guys have a podcast uh, on the doctrine of elections. Any little preview that we need to know about or hear about? Yeah, I'll, I'll tee it up uh, by okay. just saying I'm, I'm incredibly excited about this. I mean, we're, yeah. we're in an ele- election season. Yeah. Uh, we had thought about what to do next. And again, for us, it's really we want to be current. We want to, you know, want to want to look at culture and kind of evaluate the issues because the whole point of what we do is to push that through a biblical lens. Yes. So as this election is about to approach um, and we were thinking about what we needed to do, the idea kind of germinated from just a comp. We always have conversations about that. But the actual title 
I'll actually turn over to my brother because that was his idea. Yeah, so the title um, is, is sort of a play on words, right? So we titled the episode, The Doctrine of Elections with an S, with, a, with an S after that, sort of a play on words up against the doctrine of, a, the theological doctrine of election. Um, but but there's, a, there's more to it than just a play on words because what we, are, what we aim to do in this episode is to encourage believers, uh, encourage professing believers who intend to, to vote in this presidential election to not leave their biblical doctrine at home uh, when they go vote, Amen. to consider the issues, uh, the candidates through a biblical worldview, to remove from these issues their personal sentiments, their personal feelings, their uh, personal uh, biases, mm -hmm. and to look at these issues through what um, Charles Spurgeon said, uh, by the light of righteousness. Okay, so we take, we, we, we are going to encourage our listeners to take themselves out of this election and look at these issues by the light of righteousness. And, and indeed, uh, what does God's word objectively say about this? Yeah. So by the time we're done, we hopefully will be encouraging uh, Christian voters to uh, consider these issues um, up against what the word of God says and let the word of God be the only barometer mm -hmm. by which you decide which button you push, which lever you choose um, as you go to the polls and vote uh, in November, next November. Yeah, our, our doctrine, our theology should inform what we're doing in those spaces and places. The idea of separating or segregating the two, it's a false dichotomy. Yeah. And the believer cannot afford to be in that condition, so yeah. You know, I, I a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to, to, to Pastor Johnny Mack and uh, one of the things that he brought up and I thought was so good, and I've, I've said this then numerous times, I'm like, I'm, I'm stealing that, that was awesome is to differentiate even between a generic sort of Christian worldview, because everybody likes to use that, that sure. term Christian, just like everybody likes to throw around the term justice, but really to talk about a biblical worldview. And that's, that's based on the word of God, a conscience bound by the word of God, and then there's sort of this, this total integration of what does the Bible actually teach? And then how does it apply to every aspect of life? And that's kind of that 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Absolutely. All scriptures God breathed, 2 Timothy, right? 3, 16, 16 to 17. 16, yeah, yeah, all scriptures God breathed, mm -hmm. useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I just, I love what you guys do when it comes to looking at scripture and then applying that to every facet of life is so necessary. That's exactly what we want is worldview integration mm -hmm. from the scripture. At the Falkirk Center, that's what I seek to do. Um, that's what, 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 what all of us do in terms of actually trying to infuse Bible into how we talk not only about politics, but culture, mm -hmm. entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I really, as I think about the spheres of cultural influence, family, um, education, yeah. all of it, it matters. Yeah, Ryan, one of the things I love about what we get to do on our podcast mm -hmm. is we get, we get to in, engage the, the, both the combination of systematic theology yes. as well as applied uh, uh, theology, yes. right? So, so it, it's not just this stilted kind of dusty kind of theological rigor, but, but, but no application. Right. Uh, we're providing both so that to the point you made about every issue that, that, that we run into, we're encountering what does the Bible have to say? Because it does have something to say about it. Sure. And then how do we apply that to our walk in our lives? You know, Ryan, one of the things we've been talking about here at the Sovereign Nations Conference is defining terms, mm -hmm. right? We've, we've been using a lot of terminology here and defining those terms. And one of the things that we 
have become somewhat uh, renowned for on our podcast is that we take the time to define terms. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the term worldview. Mm-hmm. So in the upcoming uh, episode that we're going to release on October 21st on the doctrine of elections, um, we take the time to define what worldview is, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and what that word means. Uh, and we, we do this every episode. So we establish a thesis and then we break that thesis down even at the level of defining individual terms. So we, we're going to walk the listener through what a biblical worldview is, and then we, we, we open the door of applied uh, theology so that they, Virgil takes them through the application piece. So by the time you're done with this episode, you should be uh, confident in your confession as a Christian to be able to go into that voting booth and uh, be, 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 be confident that you're doing the righteous thing. Yeah. Not just the right thing, the righteous thing. On that note, what do you see as the greatest danger for a Christian voting today? Just as a final word. Greatest, greatest danger is just, and, and we talk about this often, is just the biblical literacy that's impacting the culture. Uh, the fact that, and Daryl says it often, it's one of, the th- one of those things where, where it, it, it's, it's one thing to kind of know what the Bible says, but it's another thing to know what the Bible means by what the Bible says. Uh, and the impact of that and the import of that is why we do what we do. I mean, it really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I would add to that that I think one of the dangers for a Christian voter today is that, I, uh, and, and I mean, ho- hopefully I won't make any enemies by saying this, but I think too many of us view politics as salvific. We, we, we view politics as a means to salvation, you know, saving the country, saving our culture, saving our way of life. And one of the points that we're going to make in this Doctrines of Elections episode is to remind our listeners of the sovereignty of God that regardless of how this election turns out, God is still on his throne, that it is God who puts leaders in place and he brings them down. Um, So ultimately, as we carry out what our God-ordained civic responsibility is in accordance with Romans 13, um, don't let that be such a weight upon you that the outcome of the election, if it turns out to not be a desired outcome for you, that you get disappointed, you get discouraged. Just remember that this is God's world. This is God's universe. Um, and, 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 uh, and these are God's appointed leaders um, and God will, t- will, will, uh, will be sovereign over them uh, regardless who they are. Amen. God is sovereign and we have a responsibility. Indeed, right. both. Amen. Amen. Very good. Well, thank you guys so much. I, I, I love that you're a part of what we're doing at the Falkirk Center. I love the fact that we're here at this conference. Um, I have learned so much just by listening to y'all and I really, really appreciate uh, your leadership. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having us on. God bless y'all.